0: To another episode of Season Crime. My name is Jasmine Nicole, and I am here to tell you yet another story about a minority. So, this story that we're about to go through today, we're gonna we're gonna get right on in it. But I, I gotta warn you, this story is wild. We are about to talk about one of the top three serial killers ever. Yet, very few people know this story. He holds the number two spot in the Guinness Book of World Records as having the second highest number of murder convictions. Known as La Bestia or The Beast, we are about to talk about Louise Garvito. In February of 1998, the nude corpses of two young boys were discovered lying side by side on a hill in Genovia, Colombia. A day after that, another boy's nude body was found just meters away from the scene of the previous day's discovery. All three of the boys had had their necks cut, they were bound by the hands, and they had bite marks and bruises on their body. These bruises reflected signs of both physical and sexual abuse. Near this area, they found the murder weapon, as well as a note. The note had an address on it, which led police to the home of a lady by the name of Teresa. When the cops showed up to Teresa's house, she lets them know that it's just her and her child living at home. I mean, she does have a boyfriend, but she hasn't heard from him in months, so she's assuming, like, I guess it's not her boyfriend anymore. She doesn't know what happened. So she does not have any connection. still. She's over it. She's done. So she does let them know that she's got a box full of stuff that he left, and since it seems like he's never coming back at this point, she does no use for it. So she tells the cops, you know what? You can take this. You got it. You can have it. The contents of this bag were interesting, to say the least. These items included cutout passport photos of young boys and a calendar with some kind of cryptic message. At the time, the police had no idea what any of this meant, but they knew it was something. So they held on to everything, hoping they would eventually figure it out. In what was believed to be a completely unrelated event a couple days later, a homeless man was for whatever reason, sitting in some bushes, hanging out. And in, in this case, on this day, it, he, you know he was definitely in the right place at the right time because he ended up observing what looked to him to be a man sexually assaulting a young boy. He, you know, he watched for a little while to figure out like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And eventually he realized this, this is what was happening. Just like most, he wasn't willing to turn his head at something like that. Once he realized and he was confident that he was seeing what he thought he was seeing, he went and he intervened and he ended up getting the boy from this situation him and the boy then went and they ran to the police office where they reported the incident about what had happened. Police didn't know exactly who the man was, but that same day, a taxi driver called in a sighting about someone who matched the description that was given of the man. And this man was arrested and charged with attempted rape. At the time of the arrest, This man didn't have any kind of personal identification on him, but he did provide the name and the ID number of a man who was later found to be a local politician in a nearby town. Back at this time, the police didn't have any resources available to confirm identification. So unknowingly, they believed the information that they were given. I mean, they really didn't have any other choice. So they went along with it. But when they started questioning him about the incident... And asking him what he was even doing in that area, that's where his story started to be a little shaky. It wasn't really making sense. He told them that he was headed to a town that was in the complete opposite direction of where he had been. The cops came to the conclusion that he was disoriented, but due to him matching the description of the victim, they believed that he was the perpetrator of the assault and he was put in jail. The cops still had to confirm the identity of the man that they had arrested. They ended up finding some phone numbers that were located in the clothing items that he was wearing when they arrested him. So they called the numbers, trying to identify the prisoner, and they discovered that this man was not exactly who they thought he was. Instead, this man's name was Louise Garvito. By this time, Garvito was already on their radar as a possible suspect. A suspect for what, you may ask? Well, it turns out this arrest for attempted rape, oh, this was just the least of his worries. The story of who Luis Garvito really is will make you wish that it was just attempted rape that he had done. Sometime in 1992, between the ages of 6 to 16, boys started going missing from the streets of Colombia. For years, however, these missing children cases were completely unnoticed. Due to a decades-long civil war going on, there was a large number of children in the area who were poor, orphaned, or homeless. Because of their social status, these missing children cases, they either weren't being reported at all, or the reports that were filed weren't taken seriously because of the environment they were in. Even though bodies were popping up all around Colombia, the cops didn't take any real notice of this until 1997. And at this time, a mass grave was uncovered. Not only was it one mass grave, but they ended up uncovering multiple mass graves. And so from here, they started connecting cases and they couldn't believe what they were finding. The monster that the police were looking for would approach these young boys either on a busy street or when they came home. The man was able to lure these boys in with things such as money, candy, or even promising job offers. Because remember, again, um, at this time, this was a very low to no income area. So he was using whatever he could to, to get these boys to come. It was really hard to say who this man was because he switched up how he presented himself when he was looking for his victims. He would disguise himself as things such as a priest, a farmer, homeless man, street vendor, drug dealers, elderly man, and a gambler. Once he gained the trust of these young boys, he would walk off with them and they would never be seen again. The boys were first bound at the hands and undressed. He would then go on to rape and to torture them. Sometimes these boys were even found decapitated. Other times, he would sharpen a foreign object and anally penetrate the boys. On multiple occasions, these boys were found with their own severed testicles in their mouth. Near the location of the bodies, there would always be some kind of lubricant or and or empty liquor bottles that he would end up leaving behind as well. Um, he would leave those things behind sometimes, so obviously he wasn't too worried um, or he didn't think anything could be connected back to him when the cops realized who they had in their custody and that this person was a person of interest for the serial killings they began questioning him on a whole nother level he was there for attempted rape so they were still questioning him for their attempted rape but then they started trying to add in and mix in questions that could also connect him to these serial killings to see if he really was the man that they were looking for not too far into their questioning, the cops started to believe that they had finally found the man who was guilty of these crimes. Louise insisted it wasn't him, and he even started crying when he was presented with all the details of the murder. The Department of Justice in Columbia didn't believe Louise at all, so they came up with a plan to prove that he really was the beast. They had quite a bit of evidence that had been left over from the mass grave, and one of those items was a pair of glasses. The prescription in these glasses showed that whoever was the owner of them had a rare eye condition, and this eye condition was only found in men of a particular age group. Now they didn't want to raise any suspicions; they didn't, you know, um, for him to somehow be able to get out of this one. So they had to make their plan on connecting the dots foolproof there, there could be no way for him to slip through the cracks. So what they decided to do is they decided that they were going to, um, because he was in jail, remember he was still in jail for the attempted rape. So they decided they were going to require everyone in this jail get an eye exam. Everyone, um, from the cops to the guards to, you know, the inmates, everyone who was in this jail was, had to get this eye exam. They didn't want to leave anyone out because again, they didn't want to come off as suspicious. So how they ended up making this work is, again, because they included everyone on this, they um, did section by section of the jail, and everyone had to empty out so they could go get the eye exam. So when it got to Louise's time to go... They emptied his cell, and they sent him off to get this exam. However, while he was getting his eye exam, they were in that cell searching for clues, searching for DNA, trying to get anything. Again, they wanted to make sure if there was anything to be found, they found it. No stone was left unturned. On October twenty second, 1999, the cops presented Louise with the proof they had obtained. They advised him that they had these glasses, and based on the eye exam, it was determined that he was the one with this condition that matched the prescription on the glasses. At this time, Louise knew he was caught. There was there was no getting out of this one. Um, the cops did a great job with making sure they locked this one down so he couldn't wiggle his way out, and he definitely couldn't. So he had no other option, he felt like, at that time but to confess it was then when he confessed to killing 140 children and as he's sitting there confessing to the cops he is begging god and mankind for forgiveness for his crimes like 140 is what he confessed to how could one man commit this volume of murders they started digging into louise's life and they discovered that it was a tragedy from the start louise was the oldest of seven trust me as, as an older child. Now it's only two, it's only me and my sister, but, um, I can speak for (laughs) all the oldest children across America. Like that's already hard enough being the oldest. You're the one that starts it all off. You're the Guinea pig. You're full of trial and error. So, I mean, it's already just hard enough being the oldest. Again, he's the oldest of seven. Also, His parents, there was no stability. So his mom was a sex worker and his dad was an abusive alcoholic. So again, the odds are already stacked up against him. The mom would actually, when she would partake in sex work with her clients, she would actually be in an area to where Louise was able to see her. Um, This was all facilitated by the father who would force Louise to watch as um, as his mother was working with these clients. And not only would he force Louise to watch his mother partake in this, but this father would ask for more money. And if the people who were, if the men who were, you know, there to get service by his wife, if they were willing to pay more, then they were also able to then move to Louise and sexually assault him and do what they wanted to him as well, all for a price. So obviously the, and this, again, this was all facilitated by the dad. So yes, Louise didn't have it easy whatsoever. Now, because of this, obviously him and his home life was not good at all. So Louise ended up running away at 16. He was out on his own, which again, he was okay with because he, according to him, it was better than where he was at. He would do different things to make ends meet. So like he was a store clerk, um, and he even worked as a street vendor and believe it or not, his job, um, what he sold as that street vendor were religious prayer cards. I mean, I I don't really see how these two go together, but uh, again, this was well before all of the killings happened. So I guess maybe at that time he was a completely different person. Who knows? But, um, or, you know, you could sell anything. I mean, anybody could sell anything. So you don't have to believe in something to sell it. Um, it's just a matter of, he just needed to get, get funds at that point. It was all about the money. As an adult, Louise picked up some bad habits from his dad, and he ended up turning into a heavy drinker and behaving aggressively. Police advised that during this time, he attempted suicide at least once, and he spent at least five years under psychiatric care. So as you guys can see, Louise was messed up from the start. He started out messed up. Um, He ended up moving out, trying to get his life together, but he ended up turning into those same habits that his father had. It resulted in him becoming La Bestia. Louise was charged with 178 child murders, and he was convicted of 140 of those. Turns out that cryptic calendar that was found with the items that they got from Teresa earlier in the investigation, that was actually a map of the victims and the locations of their remains. Louise was sentenced to 1,853 years and nine days in prison, which was the lengthiest sentence ever in Colombian history. At the time, though, Colombian law limits imprisonment to 40 years. Since Louise did assist with the investigation by giving them details and locations of the murders, that time was reduced down even further. You want to know how much it was? So, remember... I said he started off with 1,853 years and nine days. When everything was said and done and based on his cooperation, his time was reduced down to 22 years. Like, I mean, yes, the same exact thought that you're having is the same thought that I had and it's the same thought that the people of Columbia had. Um, there's there's all kinds of petitions and websites and pages just for justice, just asking to for him to remain in prison, for him not to get out at all. Which is where he's at now. Garvito is currently serving out his sentence in a maximum security prison in Colombia. He is kept isolated from the other prisoners for his own safety. Um, as most of us know who, you know, if anyone knows anything about the jail system in jailhouse justice when it comes to people who commit crimes against children, um, they are the bottom of the totem pole. They are the punching bags. They are, um, everything that you would wish and hope that they could be. Um, that is what they are in jail. They are seen as scum. And so therefore in his case, because of the magnitude of the case, the severity of the case, and also the volume of the number of murders, there's no way he would be able to make it through at all around the population. So he is kept isolated. As of right now, he is scheduled for parole in 2023. However, it is very unlikely that he will actually get out. Colombian law does state that people who commit crimes against kids can't receive any, quote, benefits with justice, unquote. Again, it's very unlikely that he's going to go ahead and get away with anything less than his original sentence because of the fact that these crimes did involve children. They don't make exceptions or that Colombian law says we're, we're not bending any kind of rules for people who commit crimes against children. Since then, as obviously, you know, as we just heard, this sentence went from 1853 down to 22 years that it was reduced to. And of course, as I mentioned, there was a lot of outrage in Colombia about this. People, including myself, this is a terrible idea. Um, it's terrible for the fact that there is even a thought that he could possibly get out since this case, the laws in Colombia have changed to a maximum penalty of 60 years. So before, it was 40 years was the maximum penalty. Now, 60 years is the maximum um, due to just the bad feedback and press that they got from this case. Um, the, the, again, the town was very vocal about the fact that they did not feel this was right, that he was able to get his sentence reduced, whether he gets out or not the fact that he was able to get it reduced so much was a full-on outrage um, enough to where they ended up changing the law altogether. Columbia still doesn't have life in prison, nor do they have the death penalty, but raising the maximum penalty to 60 years was a step in the right direction to acknowledge people um, that could be committed of these serial crimes. And that, my friends, is the story of Louise Garvito. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Seasoned Crime. Remember to follow us on your social media platforms. Seasoned Crime is on Facebook and Instagram at Seasoned Crime. And also, don't forget to send an email to seasonedcrime at gmail.com. And in there, remember, let me know what's going on. Let us know how the village can help. This show has already gotten more support than I anticipated um, for this to be my first podcast, for this to be something that I'm just starting just out of, you know, pure pleasure and my love for true crime. So I appreciate each and every one of you once again. Thank you for listening. And I can't wait till next week. Have a good week, everybody.